Hello again, and welcome back to part two of our meaty chat with Sally Scales. If you haven't already, catch up to where we left off with the previous episode. Well, Sally, let's move on to your second food memory, <laughs> which um, feeds in to Dad, which feeds into Dad's influence. First trip to Europe, and I went with one of my, my best friends, Cassia. And so we travelled through, and I had a family friend. Um, his name's Jim Newkirk, and him and his wife, Arena, live in Belgrade. And I... It was the most amazing time. Like we were only there for one night and it was just to see them. And they took us and I still remember this crazy restaurant. And I managed to find it on Instagram and it was it's called Lorenzo's and Carcalumba. I think Carcalumba. Yeah. And it was just insane. It looks like a, it looks like a prop shop doesn't it? And it looks like a prop shop, like you've got shadow boxes and mannequins and Anna, like big big sculptures of animals. It was just insane, like just all sorts of things. And I remember having their, like a it was a, a pork, dried pork dish. I can't, yeah, it's like a traditionally dried pork steak. And I still think about it because it was just like, like you, you know, we don't think about pork falling apart like a lamb shank does, but this is what that, that dish did. Like it just fully like, salivating as I'm thinking about it. But, you know, like it was just sort of crumbling, you know, and it had this incredible cheese and it was just, I love cheese. Um, did, did you feel like you, you were in Belgrade? I just remember that point because it was just, and, you know, like, you know, we went to, when we were at Jim and Arena's, you know, they, <laughs> I remember this story is that, you know, you, they have, be- they have this beautiful plum vodka and, you know, they give it to us in a small sort of wine glass and, you know, you're meant to sip it. Like it's a tradition <laughs> to give someone a drink. No, me and my friend just doubt it because we're traveling. <laughs> was just like, I was like, no, 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 you meant to see, but I was like, okay, so let's run to. Let's have another one. <laughs> but it was just, it was that experience of someone who's linked into my dad and having that experience of my dad in Europe and things like that. It was just like, it was like the food was divine. I just, I was just like, it was so yummy. But also like, and you got to remember, we had been traveling Europe and stuff, and we had some sort of occasions where we stayed with other family friends and stuff. From your big European trip you took in, in your 20s, what experiences and sensations, I guess feelings, did you take back with you to the lands? Uh, I mean, for me, it's it, it, the feeling of, well, there, there's more out there as well. Like that's one feeling, but it was also like, how incredibly lucky I was to have those that adventure sort of thing. That was definitely one of it. Um, but, you know, that we we could go anywhere. That was the thing, like taking that back to my nieces and nephews and saying, you know, you don't have to just be here. You can be wherever you want in the world and in the space and, you know, claim it for yourself, you know. Space is very important to you, isn't it? Yeah, Space and making sure that everyone has that space and acknowledging that as well. 
So on to your third food memory, Sally. Oh, I've got to tell you this story about when we were in Europe still, is that we were staying with Cassia's family and this is her Swiss family link. So her one of her aunties married a Swiss man and we went and stayed with his family and the grandmother made this divine, divine mashed potato that I've never tasted ever. And, you know, it's funny to think, oh, a mashed potato is just a mashed potato. But then it's like, no, a mashed potato is can be either really yummy or really bland. <laughs> and it was just sort of like it, was, it wasn't even white. Like I, it was more of that creamy yellow, yellowy colour. Like a real, so, like a, like an egg, egg like a scrambly egg yellow colour. Not, not as no, not as full on. Like it was more, I suppose you can say, strawy. I always think of food is such the easiest way that people can appreciate other people's culture. You know, it's you know we love trying different foods. Why don't we appreciate the people and their culture as well? So, Sally, your third memory, share this with us. So when we're talking about food and culture and people's culture and what it means, my biggest sort of food culture is our desert bush foods. And my favourite, my absolute favourite, I mean, you know that I hoarded and used honeycomb as, you know, (laughs) as a bargaining chip. And so the desert version of that was um, honey ants, you know, the one out bush. So the way to explain a honey ant is literally like a little marble on an ant, (laughs) not even a marble. Like I think it's maybe a little bit smaller than that. And it was like the purest honey, the purest maple syrup you can possibly have. And we call them jala. And it is divine. So how would you but get, thing, how would you, you'd have to catch the ant? N- no. So the way, it's a whole process. So the way you do it is you wait until after it rains because the ground is softer. So after it's rained, because you're digging into it, you're digging into the ground. So you go to a particular tree, you would follow like a worker ant on the outside you'd have to find one which sort of had a white bum on it and you follow that and you see where it goes and you scrape the top layer of the ground to see where the hole is and you'd follow and it, the worker breeze. So you've got to remember if this is the top soil, the, the, you're looking at at least a metre and a half before you actually hit any honey ants. So that's a lot of digging. A lot of digging. Why you wait until after the rain? Ah, so it's because easy, it's easy to break down, of course. It's easier to break down because it's the ground's all soft, and so you can really then dig in, and it's just it's incredible. And you and like it was sort of like these ants sort of had their own sort of honey ants had their own little cave inside, and so you would the way Mum used to do it was she would grab a root that was you know because you're digging into the root of the tree essentially. And so she would grab a really thin, like a baby root, I suppose you can say, and she would lick it and she would scrape the top bit of this little in in cave 
and would drop because the honey ants would be sort of like bats hanging on top of the, of the upside um, down. And so you, you scrape it off so they're not catching anymore. And then she would scoop it and she'd always scoop it up with a handful of red sand. You know, there's those other bush foods, which is like, you know, the camparata, which is the bush tomatoes, which is starting to be sort of eradicated because, unfortunately, of those pest weeds and things like that. And so, but they're, they're incredible in themselves. Like, you know, they come out sort of, like in like September October time, yeah. And when they're fresh, they're like a cherry tomato. They can be like a cherry tomato. That that you know when you bite a cherry tomato and it's like there's that sweetness, and then it's like a little bit of acidy kick that comes in. It's that's the same with a camparapa, but when it gets dried, it becomes like a raisin. Oh, beautiful. Like it's and like you can get some that are bitter, but it's like oh, it's divine. Oh my god, I'm salivating as I'm thinking about them. <laughs> Sal, obviously this podcast has a food focus element, but I also love to chat to you about water and the importance of water as an element in First Nations culture. I mean, the importance of water, in, especially in a desert climate, is so important. You know, a water hole is a source of you know, life for animals and humans, you know, in that space. But, like, for us, we didn't use a lot of water in cooking, but more in survival, you know, just having water, you know, drinking it and making sure we had it. I mean, I think it's the water holes are essential to us, our survival, but it also was essential to mapping, you know, because you would go... Well, you know, you can see in traditional dot paintings where people are drawing water holes because they could know that if you hit this water hole, you, this one's coming up. So it was a way to draw it. It's a mapping system. And so... Because it's a, it's a site that's never changing. Right, right. The way we hunt. You've got to remember, so the way we hunt is we're tracking, we're tracking um, um, footprints with the, you know, for kangaroos and things like that. And also, you know, we're, you know, even when we're tracking the ants for honey ants, we're looking on the ground. You know, we're having to find where it is. So for us, we're always constantly looking in that way. Whereas if you go up to like Torres Strait Islands or things like that, or even Arnhem Land where they do those beautiful sort of skeleton, fish skeleton sort of paintings and things like that on the bark and stuff, well, they painting the animal like this because that's how they hunt them, mm. whereas we're hunting them down. And I think that's, for us, the way that our land is. And so you sort of know which way you're going because you're constantly looking on the ground, looking in the horizon as well. On this podcast, we do an acknowledgement to country, honouring the traditional land on which each episode has recorded. But clearly... Words are not going to cut it. Much, much more has to be done, right? Just doing a welcome to country is so thing now. Like, what, what more are you going to do? How more are you going to go there? It's like, you know, we can't just acknowledge this space as this country is ours. You know, let's acknowledge and make sure that we are giving spaces for our First Nations communities. Let's make sure we acknowledge the space and make sure that women are being brought at the table as well. You know, how many times? Also about to say something really cheeky. Say it. 
<laughs> like how many times are we going to be okay with the male pale and stale? Mm. <laughs> not saying you're you're in that space of stale. No, no, there, no, so no, 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 just... <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. No, but I am, so, yeah. I am part of, I am part of that story, you know. But it's just about it's just about using it, it's using your power. Is using your own power for good, and how do you go about that? What I always say is like, Aboriginal people are allowed to have varying opinions. Aboriginal people are allowed to have options of what they like and don't like. Same with Greek people. There is more than just one standard. It's like the Anglo-Saxon white Australians aren't all Pauline Hanson, aren't all a version of Scott Morrison, but we don't think that. We only think of people in a minority of being of one mould and I think that's we need to stop being that because we live in such an incredible time and a space where we can be a gift to each other. It's time to talk about your social impact organisation. My social impact organisation is the APY Arts and the Collective and I'm an artist for the collective here in our Adelaide studios. It just makes me love and smile so much is the way that it works with communities. And for me, for me, it's the way that we work with and how it was set up. Like, I mean, when we talk about Aboriginal leadership and, you know, the, the privilege I got to have and the foresight of my elders, you know, they set up the galleries, you know, they set the gallery up in Sydney, they set the gallery up in Adelaide. And, you know, that was for young and emerging artists who now include me. Congratulations. <laughs> so, how does it, how does it, how was it set up? Because APY Arts Collective is producing some of the most important um, contemporary First Nations art in the country. Where did it all start from? So the APY lands, so we were set up with the art centres up there. And, I mean, you got to remember the arts movement, Indigenous arts across the country are incredible. There's some incredible artists out there. I mean, I'm very lucky to be come from the elk of the APY lands where, you know, my incredible leadership have done so much. You know, there's my grandma, Wurria Burton, was in Natsia, which is National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Arts Awards finalist and then you know you had people like Numidi Burton who paints here in the Adelaide studio and so they set it up the collective about five six years ago I think but it was always in the back of their mind and then you know for them they also questioned why they couldn't be commercial you know and why they couldn't have a commercial arm which is our galleries I think for my communities they were like well going to all these arts awards and arts events, they were like, well, hang on, why don't we have our own? And I think people always see Aboriginal people and Aboriginal artists in a deficit model that, you know, it was really scary for them to be ambitious. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. I don't know if it's successful. And my elders are like, well, watch us, you know. And I think it's it's incredible to see where we are and, you know, what we've done. So the APY Collective represents art centres from the APY lands, studios and gallery spaces in Sydney and Adelaide. People can buy works online, follow on Instagram. It's doing such amazing work. The collectives produce incredible works. Um, 
you know, in our galleries, but also making sure that is a commercial arm in that, but also ethically as well. You know, this is a space where, you know, our galleries is 80% goes back to the art centres. It goes back to the artists who were getting a big cut of that, you know, and it's making sure, you know, our art centres on the ground are run and operated by art artists, you know, so it's it's making sure that, and it's a real job for kids in the community, you know, when you're living in a remote space, there's not a lot of jobs. And so having the gallery supports that along, but also, you know, the art centres are so crucial. You know, we talk about how the kitchen is the heart of a home. Well, the art centres are the heart of a community. You know, it's where the senior elders are. It is where senior authorities are. It is where, you know, cross-generational teaching is happening. It's where, you know, that jukubra is being passed along because... For us, we're very lucky to have that with us. And so what we're putting on the ground is is our jukurpa, which is an extension of ourselves. And I think that's what I'm very lucky to have. Dear Sally, thank you so much for being part of this two-part episode of Plated Three Food Memories. I love the only thing precious about you is you, your character, your spirit. And I am most grateful how generous and kind you have been with me today. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it, online or in person. You can also subscribe, rate it and write a review. Bye for now.